0: Hello, audience, here for the monthly podcast of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, American Federation of Medical Research. I'm Dr. Richard McCallum, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, and I have the pleasure of hosting uh, this month's session, uh, which is going to be um, in recognition of National Scleroderma Month, which is June. And we have an excellent guest who's going to uh, help us uh, understand and discuss aspects of rheumatology. Uh, her name is uh, Dr. Karina Taralba And uh, Karina uh, was just appointed as our, one of our new associate editors uh, in for the journal uh, covering the subspecialty of rheumatology. Karina uh, has a background. Uh, Medical educational background at the University of Santo Tomas in Manila, Philippines, going on to University of Columbia, at Columbia University, and to do her internal medicine residency, fellowship at uh, LA County at USC, and then uh, accepting her first first faculty appointment, University of Arkansas, um, as well as helping there with their fellowship program and moving back to USC uh, to serve as the Associate Rheumatology Faculty Program Director. And there she went on to earn her master's degree in academic medicine from the Keck School of Medicine. Since that time, in in looking at Dr. Taralba's career, she's been extremely active uh, in production uh, of papers and publications national activities, uh, particularly focusing on such areas as osteoporosis, rheumatology, and of course, um, locally, uh, rising up to be um, Rheumatology Fellowship Program Director and then Chief of the Division of Rheumatology at Loma Linda um, in California, and focusing particularly on bedside musculoskeletal ultrasound for the diagnosis and monitoring of rheumatological conditions, and a very ardent advocate for medical education in rheumatology. So I think we've got the right person here to help us understand and talk a bit about um, perhaps scleroderma and other aspects that would be covered by uh, this subject for the month. So Dr. Um, Taraba, let me first of all welcome you. Hi. How are you? Good
1: afternoon to everyone, or good evening, wherever you are, or morning.
0: Well, let me ask you uh, to have an opinion about a couple of areas. As I've already stated, we're looking at National Scleroderma Month here. And as a gastroenterologist for the past 40 years or more in academics, I regard scleroderma as the scourge of connective tissue autoimmune problems. It really seems to have uh, advanced very little in management in my career. And compared to lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, uh, we don't have any of those fancy uh, highfalutin biologics. Maybe you can come in with uh, the, your first comment, why do we seem to have made many advances in other areas, and yet we seem to have a very slow, stagnant world in the scleroderma field?
1: I think part of the problem is we're still trying to get a good grasp of the pathogenesis of scleroderma. I think among the rheumatic diseases, this is probably a little bit more of a tangential, in my opinion, more of a tangential autoimmune disorder. It's not primarily inflammatory in nature. There's a fibrotic process to it. There's also a process of endothelial activation associated with it. So it's a little bit less straightforward than um, other autoimmune diseases in terms of pathogenesis. And I think that's kind of where... Uh, some of the challenges are in terms of how it can be effectively managed. Um, generally, in my experience, um, you can try and target the immune process by itself, but you're also trying to target and manage the fibrotic process itself as well. That's also ongoing, and sometimes both processes cannot be managed together with the same drug, for example. So sometimes you have to use multiple medications in this regard, and I think this is kind of where um, scleroderma is going into. um, There there have been actually multiple clinical trials in scleroderma. The scleroderma um, research investigators actually are quite active um, throughout the country. They've been doing a lot of clinical trials. But yeah, unfortunately, I think if the problem is even despite the multiple clinical trials, they've had a lot of negative trials. Um, So I think part of the challenge is maybe, in my opinion, maybe targeting the autoimmune process, but also targeting the fibrotic process. So a lot of times those can be, in my opinion, somewhat disconnected. And um, I think those are the challenges when it comes to scleroderma.
0: So, uh, perhaps um, I can give a good example of how frustrating I feel it can be and may help me in your patient care approach, I see you're very focused on medical education and obviously talk to medical students and, and uh, mentor them and also advise your patients. So one question for you would be from a patient care role, maybe give me some overall philosophies or approaches that have worked for you in the long-term management. Um, for example, I'll give you a situation just this week a patient I see, types of patients with challenging esophageal issues, dysphagia and reflux, stomach and small bowel problems. But recently, patients patient's been coping quite well on my cocktails and going along what I thought was doing very well. I see him this week and he comes in with an oxygen tank. He's quickly deteriorated with pulmonary fibrosis and pulmonary hypertension and now evolving renal failure, very precipitous, which seems to have very little warning. How how do you sort of approach these patients on a long-term care basis? What is your philosophic approach and how, how preventive or how aggressive are you to try to understand that things are probably not going to go well over time?
1: So um, a lot of times when we see these patients and their first diagnosis is scleroderma, um, a lot of times for us rheumatologists, we keep in mind that the one organ that's probably gonna cause a lot of morbidity and mortality for these patients is the lung. So they either develop pulmonary hypertension or interstitial lung disease or fibrosis or a combination of both. So you talk about, you're asking about preventive things and prognostic things. Um, A lot of times, once they get the diagnosis of scleroderma, regardless of whether or not they're having outright pulmonary symptoms, we're very aggressively screening these patients for interstitial lung disease and pulmonary hypertension. A lot of them may have, quote unquote, asymptomatic or silent uh, pulmonary hypertension, ILD, and some of them may never manifest because for whatever reason, they their symptoms might not be specifically shortness of breath. I don't necessarily wait for a patient with scleroderma to develop shortness of breath. I actually proactively screen these patients, get the PFTs with the DLCO every year. Um, maybe in the beginning, get a CAT scan, chest x-ray, and just, if needed, get chest x-rays um, eventually, maybe once every two years or so. But if they're progressing pretty fast, I will get another CT scan within 6 to 12 months. Um, Also, getting the echocardiogram is key and trying to emphasize to the cardiologist that I need a reading on the um, level of tricuspid regurgitation or PASP on these patients. Um, Again, if I have a very low threshold, I'll go ahead and get a a right heart cath done in the patient. Um, Keeping in mind, again, that the major cause of mortality for these patients is ILD and pulmonary hypertension um there these are kind of the things i do emphasize to the patient the heart and lung issues um we see less of the renal issues now um particularly with the advent of um, ace inhibitors that came on the market about close to 20 years ago 20 25 years ago um but yeah the lung is the major predictor of mortality for these patients once they st- start developing lung disease that's pretty much um where we need to focus our efforts on um you talk about the gastrointestinal manifestations, you've mentioned this patient having renal disease. Yes, we do keep those in mind. We monitor these patients for those types of things. Um, But yes, it's still important that we keep in track with the lung uh, manifestations as kind of the biomarker of sorts, the organ biomarker of sorts to guide the management of the disease. There have been progress in terms of managing these patients, though, more on the lung side of things. Um, we do use a lot of mycofenolic mofetil, and um, uh, rituximab infusions for these patients. Um, to some extent, they are effective, and there have been new antifibrotic um, drugs uh, or a drug that has been approved for scleroderma ILD, and I think there are a lot more on the market being um, in the pharmaceutical arena that are being studied right
0: now. So these would be um, sort of future bright, potentially bright um, highlights, as far as maybe some pharmacologic breakthroughs that uh, people are focusing on, right? Correct. You know, I also have a little trouble with diagnosis, you know, um, Raynaud's is my major focus, and um, Sjogren's obviously comes next, Um, And I like to get obviously the ANA, but the scl 36 and some of these more sophisticated markers, I've not been that impressed that my patients who may not be doing that well, uh, some of their serology is not that impressive. Have you encountered this kind of um, uh, inconsistencies between uh, scleroderma serology and the clinical course of the patient?
1: So for the most part, uh, yes, there is a disconnect between let's say the how specific or sensitive the antibodies are for diagnosing the disease. Um, I do manage, um, we do see patients with scleroderma who do have negative SEL70s or centromere antibodies. Um, I do pay attention to the ANA and the pattern. If they have a centromere pattern ANA or a nucleolar pattern ANA, even if it's a low titer ANA, I do highly suspect these patients might have scleroderma. Um, So those are kind of just some of the nuances when it comes to serologic testing for scleroderma patients um, that we need to keep in mind. There's also another antibody called the RNP that we usually associate with mixed connective tissue disease. However, mixed connective tissue disease by itself is actually a very interesting uh, condition. And usually the the broader way I think about mixed connective tissue disease is about a third of them are scleroderma-like. And I do treat them like sclerodermas. A lot of these patients tend to have more, um, again, fibrosis-like problems, ILD, pulmonary hypertension even. Um, So that's just one set of MCTD, RNP-positive patients that I also need to kind of look at as scleroderma patients.
0: Very good. Let me um, talk a bit about the Scleroderma Month and the fact that uh, there are scleroderma organizations all over the country. I do some work here with the Blue Bonnet Group in Texas, educating about mainly the esophagus and reflux, and that can lead to pulmonary disease too, certainly make it worse. Uh, Have you had much of an opportunity to play a role in the scleroderma societies, or do you have any thoughts about that? They're very proactive in trying to uh, reach out to patients and trying to educate. Have you uh, have any um, encounters with them so far?
1: So locally here, um, we actually have worked with the Scleroderma Foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a faculty member in my group. Um, We actually have seven centers in rheumatology here. Uh, we have a scleroderma center and we are on the scler- scleroderma foundation uh, list of ex- uh, centers of excellence. So we work with them. We actually have started holding uh, outreach um, opportunities for primary care providers, trying to um, give them more information about autoimmune diseases. We, we also try to emphasize talking about scleroderma at each of those symposia. So that's been the extent so far um, of our involvement with scleroderma and the sc- you know, patients and the Scleroderma Foundation and trying to reach out to their primary care doctors.
0: Yes, I think the patients really appreciate the education. I I, I get a lot of good feedback when I do these things. Typically, it's on the weekends, but uh, they appreciate it. Let me deviate a bit and make a comment about rheumatology in general. Uh, To me, it's a female subspecialty. You're a good representative of that. Is there any reason why this has evolved that way? Uh, A contrast would be GI, where we're dominated by female patients. Female patients dominate GI. But we have a shortage of women in GI. Any reason why uh, they love you and they love Um, endocrinology? uh, They love dermatology. Uh, What's going on there?
1: So I would probably be the last person to make generalizations about women, but um, I think we, we probably made a choice. A lot of us, at least me and the colleagues I know, have made a choice about rheumatology, um, partly from a lifestyle perspective. Um, we're not as busy, so to speak, as GI, or we're not so much in a specialty that needs um, a lot of urgent consults or stuff like that. So um, I'm, I'm just guessing, again, I'm not making generalizations yeah. of any sort here. Um, I, I think it is interesting. Um, I think a lot of us did manage to go into rheumatology because the majority of the patients are female. That's I did personally go into rheumatology because I felt I had more of a connection to female patients, mm-hmm. of course, because I'm female. Um, and I also um, had the experience of growing up with my dad who's a rheumatologist. And, and for whatever reason, I ended up rounding with him and meeting some of his younger female patients. And that was another draw to me. But then again, I'm not. i the exception. Not everybody has a dad who's a rheumatologist. But I'm not particularly sure why there's more female predominance in rheumatology than, let's say, GI, where there's a female predominance of patients too. Um, and like I said, I'm I'm not here to make generalizations about females and what their lifestyle choices are. But you know, that's a thought, a good thought. You know, something to think about. Why is that the case? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I thought I'd bounce it off you. It wasn't quite on the script, but uh, that's what I see every day. Well, I I would say in conclusion, uh, Dr. Taralba, it's been a pleasure getting to know you, uh, and certainly we've been educated by you this afternoon. Um, I really also appreciate the fact you accepted my invitation to come on board as the Associate Editor for the area of Rheumatology. I know we're in very good hands, and um, um, I certainly encourage you to also work with your faculty, medical students, rheumatology fellows to spread the gospel of uh, submitting abstracts, AFMR. You've got the Western Society meeting in Carmel every year. Some people actually go to the meeting. Most people go to the beach and drink wine, but we do promote the meeting uh, and hope that most people go. I hope your faculty and you will submit to our journal, Journal of Investigative Medicine, Jim. And encourage them to be there. That's their first step, their prep school, their early career years are spent in the AFMR, and we are the we are the journal, we're the mouthpiece. So I'm giving you a little plug, and I hope you can give us a little plug uh, at Loma Linda. And most of all, I look forward to inter- interacting with you um, with the journal and uh, in our academic adventures together in the future. Again. Really appreciate it. And thank you for, for a great podcast.
1: You're very, you're very welcome. And you can invite me anytime.
0: (laughs) Thanks again.